Welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle and my co-host is Hector Mason from Episode One Ventures. This week we have Joss White, partner at Notion Capital on the podcast. Joss tells us about his career as an entrepreneur leading up to a massive exit and then his move from angel to VC. We cover what Joss looks for in software as a service companies, often referred to as SaaS companies, and how the pandemic has led to an accelerated adoption of cloud-based software. So welcome to Riding Unicorns, Joss. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's very good to be here and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thanks. So maybe you could take us back to the start of your career and what you've been doing since you started out. Sure. I had a bit of a long and winding road into tech in that I actually started out in tech in the early 90s, buying and selling secondhand IBM equipment, which is not a market that I recommend to anyone which is very much uh, a kind of cowboy trading market with very low margins and just a very tough environment. And it was a business that my brother and his original partner had been in and persuaded me to join. And I'm not sure why I joined actually, because it was just a difficult business to make money in. But the big breakthrough came when one of our customers, who was actually a part of BT, asked us for a Cisco router. And we were calling them Kisco. We had no idea who they were or what a router was. But we sourced it from the States and we supplied it to BT. And about a week later, they faxed. You can tell how long ago it was because it was a fax machine. But they faxed through a a whole list of Cisco equipment. And again, we sourced it in the States. And we thought we'd just try and sell it to them at list price. And we'd bought it at about 50% off list price and margins, which were unheard of in the secondhand IBM market. And BT didn't even blink and just bought the equipment. And I think at that point, a, a light bulb went on and we realized that the market was moving away from big IBM systems with dumb terminals on the desk to networking and this thing called the internet. And this company called Cisco seemed to be at the forefront of that. And we turned up the, the, the whole company on its head and we became a Cisco supplier very, very early into that market before Cisco even had a presence in the UK, actually. And within six months, we were doing more than a million pounds a month and it just went absolutely bananas. We were really in the right place at the right time. And then I, I co-founded again with my brother, Ben, who co-founded each of my businesses where I co-founded one of the UK's first internet providers, which was called Star in 1995, where we tried to help businesses get set up with the internet because it was pretty complicated back then to do. We were known as an internet provider, really trying to write software and trying to innovate rather than just provide a connection to a network. And then I co-founded a business called Message Labs in 2000, which was a very early SaaS business where we did antivirus and anti-spam and other types of email security in the cloud. So you just redirect your traffic to one of our data centers and we would scrub it and pass it on. So you didn't have to worry about it at a local level. And we realized by doing that, like any good cloud-based business, we could actually follow a more data-driven approach. So we could look at things like the sender of the message and the patterns of movement within the emails that we could look inside the email itself because threats, viruses are always derivative. And we could actually predictively identify new threats without needing an exact match, without needing an update, which is how traditional antiviral software works. And that was really the big breakthrough. We could stop zero hour threats instantly and stop them long before they reach your own machines. And um, that was a big, big breakthrough at the time. And we actually stopped and named a lot of the big viruses that were prevalent at the time, including the love bug virus in 2000. But I moved to the US in 2002 to run Message Labs expansion in the US we scaled the company up pretty successfully. We got to 2008, where we had about $150 million of ARR. 
and we were the third largest SaaS business in the world behind Salesforce and WebEx. And we were gearing up for a big IPO. And then unfortunately, our IPO was actually scheduled for September 2008, which proved to be bad timing. And so we never made it, but we ended up selling to Symantec later on in 2008 for about $700 million. So one of the larger transactions in the sort of first gen of SaaS companies, but we see some of our peers, what they've gone up to do, you know, it makes us wonder about what we could have done as a public company, but um, it wasn't meant to be. But then the following year, part of the founding team behind Message Ads, we set up Notion in 2009 with the belief that, you know, there was another big shift going on in the world of technology and that all software is moving into the cloud in the SaaS delivery model. And we were just at the beginning of that sort of market explosion and that we were one of the few teams in Europe that have actually built and scaled a big SaaS business. So we thought, why don't we combine those ideas together and set up a VC just to focus on the emerging SaaS opportunity where hopefully we'd have a kind of unfair advantage because we built a big company in the space. And so that's what we did. Our first fund was our own money that we went and then went out and having kind of learned off our own money, we went out and raised from outside investors. And we're now investing our fourth fund, which is about $225 million. We have about $700 million under management and a team of about 27 now in London. And we focus predominantly on Series A and Series B opportunities. Companies in the portfolio include Currency Cloud, GoCardless, TradeShift, Muse, Glowfox, Brighter, Dixa, Unbabble, companies like that. And we're excited about the position we're in. And we feel that the enterprise software, enterprise SaaS market is really growing rapidly and has, has actually been further kind of catalyzed by, by the pandemic. And we've got a strong brand in, in the market. So we're excited about our position. Amazing. Very entrepreneurial rise. Very exciting journey. What was the first investment you made? You had been an entrepreneur. When did you first make an investment? I made investments privately before I made investments through Notion. So the first investment that I made as an angel investor was in a company called JustWorks. I was still living in New York at the time. And they are a New York-based company. And it's a SaaS platform for payroll and benefits. I was actually the first investor. Isaac Oates is the founder and the CEO. And they've actually gone on to do amazing things. So they're now comfortably a, a unicorn business and uh, tracking towards a potential IPO. So very, very excited about that. And I think maybe that made me think that all investments turn out like that. And uh, I, I don't think they do. But it was certainly a good one to get started with and an investment and a company that I'm very proud to be connected to. And I still think they've got their best years ahead of them. So that's a very, a very exciting company to have in the, in the portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if there's ever an example of one way to catch the bug, I guess, is having a first investment. That does it, that well. Exactly. Yeah, they haven't all turned out like that. You know, that's another rule about investing, I think, is however good you think you are, you're probably not as good as you think you are. And however good you think the market is, it's just such a high risk. It's a high risk occupation. I think you have to have some, some level of volume in your portfolio in order to do well. So whenever someone says to me, oh, you know, I want to do some private sort of angel investing into tech, maybe I'm going to stick, I'm going to spend a hundred grand and I'm going to spend, I'm going to make two investments. I'll always say to them, make 10 investments of 10 grand each at least because you've got to spread it around because it is, it's very, very high risk, high reward occupation, early stage investing, and you've definitely got to work a volume model. I was asking a few people the other day about angel investment advice and the, what came back was 
don't do one unless you're going to do 20. So yeah. it's, I think, good advice. No, super interesting yeah. to hear your entrepreneurial journey. I wonder if you still consider yourself an entrepreneur, which might seem a strange question given VZ is kind of the opposite. But do you still think of yourself as an entrepreneur, even while being a VC? Or have you left those days behind you? I think I do. I think we're very entrepreneurial at Notion in the way that we think about Notion and the way that we think about VC. I think we've been quite innovative in the way that we built out our platform to support our portfolio, try to really leverage all the knowledge and the pattern recognition or all the people that the network that we have to productize our value add. We've developed technology, which we call Rista, to provide us with a data-driven platform to recognize opportunities earlier using data in an automated way. We've launched an early stage investment program called Pioneers. We also were the original founders of Included.vc, which brings in cohorts of people from around the world, from minority and disadvantaged communities to take them through a kind of a course for VC, all funded by people within our network and sponsors of the program to give people who wouldn't normally get the chance to get into VC to be trained and have the right kind of connections to get into VC. So I think we feel like we've done a lot in terms of innovation above and beyond you just your kind of traditional VC firm. So I think that's maybe the entrepreneurial side of us just wanting to try to be creative and trying to be kind of curious and impatient and keep challenging the status quo, which is what a good entrepreneur does. So I think we've, t- we've brought some of that into, into VC as well. Definitely. And I was reading a bit about you on the Notion website, talking about your background and um, you talk about being quite shy as a kid. And I'm wondering how your entrepreneurial journey has impacted that and when you're looking for investments whether you look for certain traits that you used to have and the the burning fire that you talk about I think is is really interesting and and how does that impact your decision making as an investor I think it definitely does I think everything you do contributes to the way you make decisions and the way you make important decisions in some way or another whether it's conscious or unconscious but no I'm having been one myself I'm definitely very founder driven in the investments that I make and I think a lot of that is that that sort of authenticity so I want a founder to be honest and authentic and kind of comfortable in their own skin because I think that's the way that you're going to build strong relationships that's the way you're going to build strong teams that's the way you're going to be self-aware about your strengths and weaknesses and make sure you build teams and, and and bring in talent to address some of those weaknesses and so I think that sort of honesty and authenticity is one of a few important traits in a founder but yeah I'm, I'm more into the empathetic high EQ self-aware type of founder as opposed to the big ego founder who, who all paths lead to them and in, in that way that's sort of very personality driven and that can work by the way but it, it's not something I'm so drawn to and I think that often it doesn't scale well either that sort of model and I think just people are more open and about their feelings and about their emotions than they used to be and so I think that all brings about the need for more kind of empathetic leadership where you're able to develop relationships on that sort of level so I think it's an interesting subject but I also like founders who can fill the room in the way that they talk particularly the way they talk about their vision and how they're going to help really address a big big problem and how they're going to address it differently I like founders who have a bit of a chip on their shoulder because I think that really spurs you on and motivates you to prove people wrong. And that, that can be a very powerful thing. 
founders that have high intellect, high curiosity, and that right kind of balance between being prepared to be coached, but having strong conviction about what you're doing. If you've got 100% conviction, then you could drive off a cliff at 100 miles an hour. But if you're too willing to be coached and then you don't have enough conviction and you end up with a bit of a hodgepodge, I think, of trying to please too many people and maybe not striking out and taking the bolder decisions. So that sort of balance between coaching and conviction, I think, is important as well. But yeah, there's just a few things. But I, I could talk all, all day about what kind of attributes I look for in a founder and an entrepreneur. It's, a, it's an interesting subject because I don't think any of them tick every box. But there's definitely some important traits, I think, which you do see time and time again. Definitely. Wouldn't it be great to have that as part of your data platform, a way to ingest that data and spit out part yeah. of your decision making? Uh, but yeah, tough we're, challenge. We're, we're, we're trying, but it, yeah, yeah, it's quite complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's a topic yeah. we actually covered with Juliet from MMC as well, that kind of coaching versus conviction. And then obviously with your founder hat on, you must have experienced some really difficult times as well yeah. as the, the success. Is there a moment that stands out where you had to show like real resilience that you can think of? And then how does that maybe impact how you deal with issues within your portfolio when things crop up? Yeah, you airbrush your story, partly because you just want to compress the story into a short space of time, but also you sort of tend to focus on the highlights but yeah, I always say every startup is dysfunctional. The, the best ones are just slightly less dysfunctional. <laughs> and so there's always problems and often major, major problems and existential threats on a regular basis and a lot of stress. So often people look back and tell their story and you're thinking, God, they make it sound so easy, but it's definitely never, never easy. So there's so many big, big challenges we had along the way. But one that always stays in my mind is with message apps. The company was originally founded in Gloucestershire. And then we moved to London. We had an office in London. Then we moved around the world. But we, we actually became the largest processor of email in the world. We were processing billions of emails every day. And our, our architecture was originally designed without that kind of scale in mind. We were just sort of fiddling around, really. We always joked that, you know, we read the manual wrong. And we started in the Stroud Valley rather than in Silicon Valley. What, what we found was that when there was big spam attacks, the, the volume of traffic through our network could increase by 30, 40 times. And this was a time before AWS that we were using different data center providers around the world. And we were able to load balance within the data center across different servers, but we hadn't architected so that we could load balance across different data centers. We'd never imagined that the volume of traffic would have, would have got so extreme. And so when there was a big virus outbreak or a big spam attack, we were finding that following this sort of real extraordinary growth of message apps and companies and users within the network, that the emails would be delayed in, in the worst times, emails would be delayed by several hours. And these were big companies, you know, these were banks and we had the Federal Reserve, we had the Bank of New York, we had big, big organizations around the world, Lloyds Bank here in the UK, um, and we weren't delivering their email, a business critical application. And there wasn't very much that we could do. I would be speaking to a customer and I have like two or three customers on hold and just saying, well, I know you're not getting any email, but at least you're not getting any viruses. <laughs> and they'd say, yeah, well, of course I'm not getting any viruses. I'm not getting any email. So there's, you know, that would be impossible. And I think at that time where literally the email was being delayed by several hours, I think that we really felt that because we were really providing them with such good levels of protection, 
I think customers gave us a free pass once, maybe even twice, but it took us six to 12 months to really re-architect our infrastructure so we could load, load balance across data centers and we could build in more capacity. And in that time, it really felt that we were kind of hanging by a thread. You can't operate without email. And that was really, really nerve wracking. And I think that my lesson from that is, well, one is the importance of architecture in the way that you build out your product. And two is you've really got to over communicate with your customers in times of crisis like that. I think that the one thing customers hate more than anything is being left in the dark and not knowing what's going on. And hopefully if you've delivered value in the past, even if there is a major issue and you're really over communicating, then you can get through it. But it's tremendously stressful for sure. That's a good war story to have when founders come to you with a problem that they might be dealing with. Yeah. As someone who sits across such a large portfolio, what is the most common challenge you see founders coming to you with? What are founders struggling with at the level you're investing? I mean, there's a few. I mean, one thing that I, it's become a phrase that's just so overly used now. I'm, I'm almost inclined not to use it, but really understand what product market fit means to you have a very, very clear and watertight definition for product market fit. And only when you have fulfilled that definition, should you really start to scale up in any meaningful way. So I see either companies having a rather fast and loose definition of product market fit, and, and, and then off the back of that investing, or just not reaching product market fit at all and investing you know, into sales and marketing, into, into go to market expansion plans you know i think you you should stay really really lean and really really focused and just iterate as quickly as you can until you've reached product market fit and then you can start to really invest much much more aggressively in your go to market activities in the knowledge that you've got that foundation of product market fit which is really the beginning the foundation for go to market in my mind so i tend to feel a misunderstanding about what a product market fit is or investing too much into go-to-market before companies reach product market fit, which to me is just completely wasted energy, wasted investment. I think that's one. Another important one, I think, is the reluctance to hire really senior, experienced people. We did a lot of research into this, which we called the unicorn trajectory, where we looked at a sample of cloud-based B2B enterprise software businesses that had reached unicorn status, and then a control group which had raised similar amounts of money, at least at Series A, but hadn't gone on to do very well and looked at the way that their teams evolved over the years. And the biggest difference was the way that the unicorn companies supplemented to their original leadership team, bringing in people with significant experience to maybe complement the founder team who are for, for sure full of energy and ambition and have the vision for the business. But I think the best teams have a mix of, of, of that kind of founder mentality or people who have kind of come up from within the organization but also bringing in some people where it's they're not in the biggest jobs of their lives they have done this before they have got that experience and so I think bringing in those senior people early to really complement the leadership team is another sometimes taking too long to do that and trying to rely on the original team and feel like it's going to damage the culture or that the, the belief that the, the original team is sort of sacrosanct in some way, I think can be, can be dangerous. Yeah, that's really interesting. That research sounds fascinating. 
I guess there's the there's a possibility of you know, unicorn trajectory companies being able to attract that top tier talent. So I wonder how you looked at that with the research, whether it was causal or whether it was like actually these were the most exciting companies. Of course, they could attract the amazing talent, and the ones that didn't do so well couldn't attract the amazing talent. Yeah, no, it's a good it's a good point, and and it's something that I wondered myself because I think. As the years go on, obviously the brand gets bigger, they raise more money, they're just in a different position. But even early on, even between Series A and Series B, I think on average there was three or four more people added to the leadership team with significant experience before Series B in the unicorn companies as they were in the sample set. Something like that. So there, there, there were quite significant disparities even quite early on. You know, my natural habitat is more, you know, believing in the founder team and the early team. And, and, and I still believe in that. But I think the best teams are a combination. That's really interesting. And yeah, I think that there must be some founders who slightly take some encouragement or they need that sort of confidence building to think, yes, we are a company who can go out and attract the very best talent. And maybe some people just don't quite have that and less encouraged. So founders are a bit worried about overspending and burning up their runway with expensive senior hires. But actually, I know from my own experience, when we invested in the best people, it made everything else tick. And then that allowed us to, if we needed to, go and raise more money if we needed to, because everything was going in the right direction. Whereas the, yeah. a lot of founders go into this kind of runway fallacy of not wanting to spend it too quickly and sort of just spluttering along. Then, then yeah. they can't raise more money and that's where they die and they blame the market for not being able to raise more money and things like that. And so yeah. founders should founders beware. You know, I think you, you, you're raising money for a reason, which is to get the best people in to deliver on the vision. And um, yeah. sometimes you've just got to go and make those hires. Yeah, and and you know, selectively, um, you do need to try to manage the the, the cash. Um, but I think you know something that we look for certainly Series A or, or particularly you know, even more so Series B is is the founder or the founding team's ability to attract, to want to attract, and then to attract you know world class people who have had the experience who. You know, they have, they, they have no right to be able to attract at the stage that they're at, but they've been able to do it because of the long-term vision that they have. And they're able to not only have the awareness that they need it, but actually the ability to attract those people, bring them into the team to complement the, uh, you know, the founding team or the, the early team, the, the early team from the business. So I think it's, it, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely important. Yeah, absolutely. So you invest in the cloud. And how are things changing within the cloud space? And what has COVID's impact been on cloud generally? And which industry are you maybe surprised by has moved over or transitioned to more cloud-based systems? Yeah. When the first lockdown happened, I think like a lot of VCs or like a lot of people in any industry, you know, we we uh, we tried to figure out what was going on. We were very much in sort of emergency mode. Um, everyone was worried about exactly what the impact would be. We had some companies who needed, you know, emergency funding or who were in the middle of funding who weren't able to complete their funding. And so there was quite a lot of sort of short-term panic and short-term issues to deal with. And I think we came together and, and handled that pretty well. But once we stuck our head above the parapet and thought and really thought about it and saw some of the 
the wider trends or maybe the you know the the medium to, to longer term trends emerging we realized that 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 covid would be uh would be a real kind of catalyst for our for our industry because you know that it's it, it's easy sometimes to because we're so out there on the on the cutting edge because that's you know that that's the market that we're in we're trying to find um you know companies of the future who are who are doing new and interesting things sometimes you don't realize that actually you know the mainstream market that SaaS SAS is only 20% of the overall software industry, for example. And so there's still a huge amount of, of um, software and applications being used on premise. And there's a lot of industries, there's a lot of very much sort of laggard industries or industries sort of partway through their transition. And it, it was almost like imposing a sort of a forced sort of 30 day trial, 60 day trial for a huge range of SaaS applications and companies were kind of forced into the cloud because it was a it was a, a situation that that really shined a light on the benefits of cloud-based software, which is, you know, you can you can access it and use it from anywhere, from any location, using any device. Um, and uh, so, you know, it, it's absolutely perfect for uh, remote working, and um, and and enabling people to communicate and collaborate and, and just to work effectively, no, no matter where they are. So. I think it, it has been, and, and, and the SaaS, the SaaS and FinTech and, you know, any sort of cloud-based software markets were growing well anyway. And then, you know, the, the lockdowns came along and I think it just acted as a further catalyst. So um, I think that the, the latest research that I've seen is Gartner were uh, predicting that SaaS, SaaS would overtake on-premise software by uh, 2030, by which time the, the whole market would be worth more than a trillion dollars. And I think the latest research is that SaaS will go through 50% of the market by 2025. And so, you know, and I still think, I still don't think the impact's been fully understood because it's still going on. But I think that the, you know, that SaaS becoming the dominant form factor, becoming more than 50% of the market has been brought forwards by several years for sure. Um, because I think once you go into the cloud and you realize that actually it works really, really well, and there are some very distinct benefits to it advantages to it um particularly for you know supporting remote sort of virtual work environments you know, there's no going back um and so i think generally it has been um it has been a real tailwind for our industry um and um you know i i, I think that 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 you know we, we feel really excited about that but at the same time um it has brought a lot more money into the industry a lot more competition into the industry you know costs particularly for, for people um you know the war for talent and the, the costs of talent are just going through the roof and so there's real challenges out there but it's certainly um you know exciting times to to be in the market and and you know what and uh, you know in some ways you know i find it i find it worrying but in other ways i i find it exciting but we are we are definitely moving very very rapidly towards a digital first world and a physical second world and and, and um and COVID has has accelerated that. Super interesting. I just want to, but before we close up, I just want to um, go back to to your exit because we touched on it and we didn't go into it very much. But I mean, seven hundred million dollars is a massive exit, <laughs> and we don't speak to many founders who've had an exit like that. So mm -hmm. I wonder if you could just talk briefly about the the kind of psychology behind and um, behind an exit like that, and the kind of feelings going into it when it happens. Is there kind of 
incredible amount of emotions, huge joy, and is it an anticlimax afterwards? Or what are the feelings? And it, it was sort of bizarre to be celebrating and to be, you know, having such a sort of exciting milestone while the, the rest of the world was sort of collapsing around us. But it was also a good time to have money and a good time to be investing because almost all, every asset class was very, very depressed in terms of valuations. So it all worked out. I mean, it would have been interesting to go public. We felt we had a big enough vision to be a public company and be the con- consolidator rather than uh, the company being acquired, but it wasn't meant to be. And, and it worked out great for us. And I think we're all very proud of the company that we created. And as I said, Pastini, which was founded in Silicon Valley the same year as Messageabs, we grew Messageabs into a company of about twice that size. And so we're pretty proud that you know, a company from Europe could, could do that and certainly gave us a lot of belief in ourselves and belief in the European market, I think, to create a real, you know, outsized business. Yeah, absolutely. It's a gr- great to hear those kind of journeys and highs and lows emotionally of what you have to go through. But yeah, very exciting to have. Yeah, yeah. So we always like to end the podcast with just asking our guests if they were to have dinner with three people, who would they be? So who would they be for you? It's an interesting question, but I've actually... I've got three old copies of um, Time magazine here, which I think would be a, a good trio. So the first one is Steve Jobs. Yeah. So, and then the second one is Muhammad Ali. And the third one is Nelson Mandela. I think I had the Steve Jobs one and it was such a kind of iconic black and white picture on the front of Time. So then I sent off for the Mandela and the, and the Muhammad Ali one. So I got kind of got all three, but um, I think that'd be a good combination. Muhammad Ali was someone that my dad was obsessed with and I think just got me obsessed with him from all his kind of stories of Ali and getting up in the middle of the night to listen to his fights on the radio and all these amazing sort of romantic scenes that that you hear about. So I've read quite a lot of books about him and there's an amazing documentary about his fight in Zaire against Foreman called called When We Were Kings. And uh, it's just this sort of wonderful, magical incredibly charming funny would have been a great founder disruptive unreasonable but just brilliantly talented and just so so exciting in in everything that he did but also held very firmly to his beliefs you know the sort of definition of charisma so I'm not sure I'd get a word in edgeways but he'd be good and then Mandela so I, I sort of see him much more sort of gentle and sort of wise and a different kind of companion a different kind of dinner guest than Ali but just amazing that he was able to do what he did without carrying the bitterness and the hostility that I think almost anyone would have held in his position and realized that it was all about bringing people together and understanding different points of view and not being divisive and you know love beats hate that unifying force that gentle unifying force that he had and and just the massive influence he had in South Africa and and the rest of the world but just seems like a wise Yoda kind of figure that I think again would be would be fascinating to talk to and and then you know I'd, I'd have to have a tech person there and so Steve Jobs I think would actually be the most difficult person of the three to talk to I imagine him with quite a limited attention span and, you know, doesn't suffer fools. And so I think you'd need to be really on point to engage him. Otherwise, I think he'd drift off quite quickly. But just amazing 
kind of perfectionist was really able to see the future I think before before anyone else and you know the way he had those sort of big ideas and just didn't stop until things were absolutely perfect and that combining that sort of design ethic with usability but just having that sort of ethos and that brand of absolute no compromise I, I think takes a very very special kind of person and someone that's had such an influence on the tech world and, and all of our lives and the with the devices that we have in our pockets, you know, transform so many industries, really. So, yeah, again, another sort of fascinating figure. So I think that'd be the three. Yeah, well, it's an incredible lineup, <laughs> an absolutely top-notch lineup. So, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming on Riding Unicorns and telling us your story, Just. It's been a pleasure to have you. And, yeah, it's great to hear all your advice for, for founders and some of the trials and tribulations of being a founder and starting a company and everything. So. Thanks again for coming on. Great. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. It was, it was great to be on, nice the, on the show. Thanks for listening to Riding Unicorns. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you want to receive episodes direct to your inbox, go to ridingunicorns.substack.com and subscribe on there as well. See you next time.